1: Good evening, everyone. We are following a number of important stories tonight, including President Biden's emotional visit to Buffalo today, where he met with the families of the victims killed in Saturday's racist mass shooting. A little later, I'll speak with the son of one of those victims. Plus, polls close later this hour in North Carolina and at the top of the hour in Pennsylvania. We'll have updates on some of the major races. We'll begin the readout tonight with breaking news on the investigations into the January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol. The New York Times is reporting tonight that the Justice Department has asked the January 6th committee for transcripts of the interviews it has conducted in its investigation. The request came on April 20th with the DOJ indicating that some committee interviews may contain information relative to a criminal investigation we are conducting. NBC News has now confirmed that reporting. The DOJ did not indicate the number of transcripts they wanted or if there were any specific interviews they were interested in. So far, the committee has interviewed more than 1,000 people, including many close to the twice impeached former president. While Attorney General Merrick Garland has received criticism about the Justice Department's response to the insurrection, this is the latest sign of the department appearing to escalate the scope of its inquiry. And as the New York Times also points out, several months ago, the department quietly detailed a veteran federal prosecutor from Maryland, Thomas Wyndham. To the department's headquarters he's overseeing the politically fraught question of whether a case can be made related to other efforts to overturn the election aside from the storming of the capitol that task could move the investigation closer to donald trump and his inner circle in january 6th committee chairman benny thompson told reporters tonight that his committee is willing to work with the department of justice but no agreement has been made yet on what will be provided. Joining me now, former federal prosecutor Glenn Kirchner and Barbara McQuaid, professor at the University of Michigan Law School and a former U.S. attorney. I'll just ask each of you, ladies first, Barbara, um, what do you think it indicates? Because we know that there has been, this is the largest investigation in DOJ history. So we know that they're investigating the January 6th insurrection. What does it mean that they want transcripts of interviews that the January 6th committee has conducted?
2: Joy, I think this signals that the investigation is not solely related to the physical attack on the Capitol on January 6th, that we've known for a long time, but is, is that much more expansive investigation into all of the things that the committee has been looking at. It seems to me that it's likely that the Justice Department has been building to this stage All along, you know, they've got that seditious conspiracy case against the Oath Keepers. Three of them have now pled guilty and are cooperating. And so they've been building up to this point and they're now ready to go overt and sort of admit to the world that, yes, we are looking at all of this at everybody, including Trump in his inner circle. So to me, that's what this signals.
1: You know, Glenn, yeah, this, this feels very significant to me because, you know, we know that the physical attack on the Capitol, that's been the prosecutions we've seen so far, the low-level guys, the people dressed up in, you know, crazy costumes, the people who were committing violence against police officers and inside the Capitol, that is one chunk of this. But the committee, you know, and we now know, thanks to a lot of good reporting, driven on a lot of ways by Liz Cheney, has been zeroing in on Trump, his inner circle, his family, members of Congress, people who were involved in the overall strategy behind the physical attack. So when you see the Justice Department asking for these transcripts, what does that say to you?
3: You know, it's interesting because I think we've all experienced some frustration because it doesn't look like the Department of Justice has been investigating this the way it would ordinarily investigate, you know, even large scale conspiracy cases because they don't appear to have been sort of carpet bombing folks with grand jury subpoenas the way we ordinarily would. Um, So but I think if we saw the wood in front of us and and we try to discuss where we are now, think about this. If the Department of Justice had gone after everybody with grand jury subpoenas, they probably would have been battling witness after witness after witness. These thousand plus witnesses, they would have been battling with Congress who gets which witness first, who has the the greater priority. Now, what the Department of Justice can do is they can take a thousand plus transcripts. And they can use that to build their criminal investigation. So I I actually think whether this was by design, by happenstance or some combination thereof, this might turn out to be um, a, a pretty savvy way to go about investigating the case. And let's not forget that the chief investigative counsel for the January 6th committee, Tim Heafy, is frankly a very accomplished RICO prosecutor in his own right when he served at the U.S. Attorney's Office for the District of Columbia. So I suspect I suspect it has been a really savvy investigation that has been put together by the January 6th committee.
1: Let me ask both of you this, and I'll start with you, Barbara, first. Um, You know, I'm a lawyer, so I, you know, but but my sort of logic sense tells me that if the DOJ is looking at something like a larger conspiracy investigation, not just the physical attack, but a conspiracy to either obstruct Congress, which I know that's one crime it could be, um, or a larger. As Glenn is indicating sort of a big RICO case saying that there was a conspiracy to, you know, steal the election, conspiracy to, you know, attack the government, whatever that conspiracy might be. Does the fact that they want transcripts indicate to you that someone that they've prosecuted and who's now cooperating and we know there have been a lot of sort of high level cooperators among, you know, organizations like um, not the three percenters, the Proud Boys, these other sort of or big organizations um, Could some of them have maybe indicated that they did have connections and contact with some of the same people that the January 6th committee is interviewing?
2: Yes, I think that's quite possible. I think that's quite possible, Joy. Um, Three of those Oath Keepers have entered guilty pleas and have agreed to cooperate. So we won't know for a while what it is they have said, but we know that one of them, Joshua James, was seen with Roger Stone on January 6th at the Willard Hotel and so it is quite possible that those defendants have provided links to others. I also think that there have been some really tremendous uh, uh, testimony that has already been given that has been publicly reported. We know that two aides to Mike Pence, uh, Mark Short and uh, Greg Jacob, have revealed some really uh Uh, astonishing testimony about Donald Trump's efforts to push Mike Pence to throw the election to him. We know about the testimony of those who are still at the high levels of the Justice Department after William Barr left, like Jeffrey Rosen uh, and uh, Richard Donahue, who talked about how Jeffrey Clark had a plan to uh, throw the election into the states. And so getting their hands on, on those transcripts can be very valuable in trying to put this all together. And then, as you say, if they've got additional testimony not known to the committee, like the testimony of these oath keepers, they may be in a position to put together some very strong charges in short order.
1: Right. And Glenn, you know, they're, they're asking for, you know, transcripts of interviews conducted and that will be conv- conducted. So it's, it's intriguing in that they obviously have eyes on the investigation. One transcript they'll never get is Donald Trump because it's pretty the the January 16th is indicated. They're not going to try to even try to call Donald Trump. But it seems to me very hard to believe that someone like Donald Trump, who if you talk to people like Tim O'Brien and other people who have been biographers of him, When it comes to anything that's about his himself, he doesn't care about anyone else, but he definitely cares about himself. And if the idea was that he wanted to remain in power by any means necessary, it's hard for me to believe that he wouldn't have known what was going on. I can believe Pence didn't know because poor Pence was meant to be a victim in this whole thing if he didn't comply. But it's hard for me to believe that Trump didn't know. So in your mind, is it possible for the DOJ to conduct an investigation and isolate the former president out of it?
3: Oh, absolutely. There's so much evidence that's been reported that Donald Trump did know and that he had corrupt intent. As but one example, when he was talking to some of his DOJ officials and he was told there was no election fraud, he said something along the lines of, it doesn't matter, just say there was and leave the rest to me and my allies in Congress. That screams corrupt intent. That's important information. Let me build on one thing Barb said. She said there's been a lot of really important testimony that we have learned about Developed by the January 6th committee. Well, guess what? If the Department of Justice had gone first and had presented these thousand witnesses to the grand jury, we would get to know about none of that information Mm. because of grand jury secrecy rules. Now we're going to get on June 9th, we're going to get a really compelling view of what these thousand witnesses said in their sworn testimony, what they brought to the table. And it's kind of a win-win because the American people are going to get to see that evidence and the grand jury is ultimately going to benefit from that evidence. So this is not the worst way DOJ could have gone about investigating this.
1: Yeah, you know, and and that's a great point that Glenn makes. And, And Barb, you know, it's going to be interesting because if what we're getting is a narrative of an attempted coup um, against it. And that's what we're going to get in in June. But if this is also a crime, if there's an ongoing criminal investigation, a RICO investigation that starts to touch some of the people who are going to be presented in these presentations that the January 6th 6th committee does, this is unprecedented, clearly. What does that do to our ongoing sort of political situation? What if it turns out that Mark Meadows was involved in a RICO crime? What if it turns out that some of these people are being looked at by DOJ? Um, you've also got people running for office right now that were a part of the insurrection or that were um, involved in the Stop the Steal rallies, etc. This just feels incredibly unprecedented.
2: Yes. And not only that, but I think DOJ policy could get implicated to the extent that we are looking for at people who are on the ballot this fall. So all of those members of Congress, for example, those who've been subpoenaed, uh, you know Jim Jordan and Kevin McCarthy mm-hmm. and Mo Brooks and others who are actually fact witnesses and had some role in talking to Donald Trump that day and appearing at the rally, they have some criminal exposure here. They are at least subjects of this investigation. Uh, DOJ has a policy of not interfering with elections. And so it, it could be that if they are Able to charge before September 1st or thereabouts, and it seems unlikely they'd be able to put it together that quickly, then they Mm -hmm. would likely wait until after the November elections before they would charge anybody who's on the ballot. So it definitely does play a role in what the Justice Department is deciding to do.
1: It's it's so unprecedented, Glenn, but I have to ask, I'm going to leave this final question to you. You know, a lot of these people who have been subpoenaed by the January 6th Committee have told the committee to F off and and laughed (laughs) off the subpoenas like they don't have to comply with them. It's going to be kind of different to try to do that to the Justice Department. If you get subpoenaed by DOJ, can you pull what Bannon et al. pulled with the January 6th Committee, or are their lawyers going to have to tell them, bruh, (laughs) you have to comply?
3: Yeah, you're, you're not going to laugh off a federal grand jury subpoena because if you do, the U.S. Marshals are going to be at your door at 6 a.m. the next morning to take you into custody. So I, now what it will also produce is a lot of these witnesses will just go in and plead the fifth if they have criminal right. exposure. They thought they could kind of half-step that before the J-6 committee. Let me just finish with something Barb said, because we do have this Norman tradition that we try not to do anything in the immediate run-up to Uh, an election that could interfere with the election. But let's not give insurrectionists an election holiday. Insurrectionists who are running for re-election, let's rethink that Norman tradition, because I don't know that it ought to apply under these circumstances.
1: Yeah, and it sure didn't apply when Jim Comey decided to interfere with the 2016 election 11 days out and then re-interfere with it three days out. So it ain't always applied uh, rigorously. Let's just say it it all depends on the situation. Glenn Kirshner, Barbara McQuaid, thank you both. I really appreciate y'all scrambling to get here for this breaking news. Appreciate it. Up next on The Readout, President Biden makes an impassioned plea for all Americans to reject the virulent racism that led to the Buffalo mass murder. The son of one of those Precious Victims joins me next. Plus, the right-wing politicians and Fox News hosts who've been pushing the racist Great Replacement Theory, well, now they're deflecting and pretending that somehow they, they are the real victims. And polls are beginning to close in some of the five states holding primaries today. Hope everybody voted. Steve Kornacki will join us from the big board. The readout continues after this.
4: we can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future. That's PlannedParenthood.org future.
1: Today, President Biden was in Buffalo paying his respects to the victims of Saturday's mass shooting and mourning with the families. For all of them, the pain is raw and the reality incomprehensible. President Biden reminded everyone that it was the deadly 2017 neo-Nazi rally in Charlottesville, Virginia, that spurred his run for president against Donald Trump. You know, the one where the angry marchers chanted, Jews will not replace us, replacement theory in real life, calling it a battle for the soul of the nation. He referenced Charlottesville again today.
5: When I saw those people coming out of the woods or the fields in Virginia, in Charlottesville, carrying torches... Shouting, you will not replace us. Accompanied by white supremacists and carrying Nazi banners. That's when I said no.
1: And he called Saturday's attack venom.
5: White supremacy is a poison. It's a poison. (laughs) Running through, it really is. Running through our body politic. And it's been allowed to fester and grow right in front of our eyes. No more. I mean, no more. We have to refuse to live in a country where black people going about a weekly grocery shopping can be gunned down by weapons of war, deployed in a racist cause. We have to refuse to live in a country where fear and lies are packaged for power and for profit. We must all enlist in this great cause of America.
1: But that wasn't the only goal of Biden's speech. The consoler-in-chief also spoke about the victims of the shooting. He talked about former Buffalo Police Lieutenant Aaron Salter, who worked as as a security guard at the Topps supermarket and died trying to stop the shooter. He talked about Andre McNeil, who had gone to Topps to pick up a surprise birthday cake for his 3 year old son. And he talked about Ruth Whitfield, beloved wife, mother and grandmother who went to the store to pick up a few items, but never made it home. And with me now is Garnell Whitfield, former Buffalo fire commissioner and son of Buffalo shooting victim, Ruth Whitfield and Ben Crump friend of the show and attorney for the Whitfield family. Thank you um, both for being here and and Mr. Whitfield deepest condolences to you. Um, and I just want to let you talk. I, I want to go ahead and let you talk about your beloved, beloved, beloved loved one who died um, in that horrible mass shooting.
6: Well, first of all, thank you for, for having us here um, tonight. Um, thank you. My mother uh, uh, was a beautiful person. Uh, my mother, uh, what I, uh, remember most about my mother, what I loved most about her was the way in which she loved. Uh, she loved uh, us unconditionally. Uh, my mother uh, was our caretaker. Uh, she was an angel. Uh, my mother on that Saturday morning uh, had just left the nursing home where my father is interned. My father had been, has been there for the last eight years now. Every single day, my mom went up to that nursing home to care for her husband, the love of her life. Uh, unselfishly, uh, she went up there, she shaved him, she cut his hair, she washed and ironed his clothing, she did his nails, anything he needed uh, to maintain his quality of life, she provided for him faithfully every day. Uh, on this day, she did the same thing. She left the nursing home, wanted to stop and pick up a few groceries on the way home and encountered uh, this individual. She didn't deserve it.
1: No, she didn't. I mean, I, I just have the, the wonderful notes here about your mom. Uh, Miss Ruth was 86. Um, she was always immaculately dressed for your family. Yes. Uh, she was sharp, yes. Yes. Uh, always looked great. Um, and she, as, as you said, um, took great care of her wonderful family. And it says here that you, you all are considering taking some action. Um, In response to the death of your mom, what do you want? Either you can describe that or you can have uh, Ben describe that.
7: Uh, Joy, you know, I I am so grateful to the Whitfield family, Carnell and his brothers and sisters for saying they're going to use this pain and they're going to use this anger to try to achieve positive change, uh, to give a proper legacy yeah. to Miss Ruth Whitfield. She was a person of love, and she's not going to let this act of hate define her legacy. That's what she instilled in her children. And so we are looking at bringing uh, a lawsuit against the gun manufacturers and holding all of those accountable, Joy, who had anything to do with this massacre of Black people. You see, Joy, the We want to hold this individual accountable for his hateful act. But we also want to hold those people accountable that get at the root of the hate. All of these uh, websites and these uh, cable news personalities who talk about these race replacement theories and so forth, they may not have pulled the trigger, but they certainly loaded the gun to have this 18 year old white supremacist go and, in his words, try to kill as many black people as he could.
1: Yeah. And, you know, Mr. Whitfield, I wonder in, you know, and, in, and I apologize for having to make you talk about this in your grief with fresh grief at that. But do you who do you hold responsible for this? I mean, I read through this, but this just crazy um, manifesto by this shooter um, that references that he was, you know, He was online bored sitting home reading white supremacist stuff, and that's where he picked it up on 4chan and other places. But we also know that Rupert Murdoch has an empire, part of which is using replacement theory, the great replacement theory, to profit on Fox News, on Tucker's show, um, in some of their newspapers like The New York Post. Like, the Murdoch empire is actually profiting from selling this stuff. Do you hold them responsible in any way?
6: Absolutely. Um, You know, as 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 Mr. Crump said, uh, you know, this young man may have pulled the trigger, but he was birthed by this system, Uh, whatever, uh, you know, whatever he availed himself of uh, to come up with these theories and whatever drove him to take this action ought to be called into question and held accountable. Uh, I'm not sure about what those Things work. That's why we're working with Mr. Crump. But we certainly understand that the problem is much bigger than this young man. He did not act alone. He did not act alone. That's, and uh, that's that, what they yeah. want us to think. Yeah. And we're that, investigating that, the, every aspect.
1: Yeah. That's the big question, Ben, because, you know, y- you have everyone from Elise Stefanik, who literally was putting out campaign ads on Facebook, where somebody who's online would be more likely to see it, you know, touting the same replacement theory. And she's now claiming that's not what she was saying, but she literally said it again yesterday, um, that Democrats are plotting to replace, you know, real Americans with, with immigrants. I mean, this has been a relentless campaign. Tucker's just one person, but he's the most prominent one and the most prominent person on Fox. Are these people, Just, you know, the First Amendment is real. (laughs) Is there any way to hold people Mm -hmm. like that accountable? And then also, you know, the parent bought this AR-15 for this 18-year-old.
7: Who's responsible? Yeah. And, Joy, like I said, there are many accomplices to this massacre, and we're investigating to see how we can hold any and all of them responsible, not just for the sake of trying to call them out. But to try to prevent this from happening again, if we don't do something to stop this radicalized uh, radicalization of these young, insecure people to go out and commit senseless acts of violence. How many more Buffalo, New Yorks? How many Parklands? How many more uh, Charleston, Mother Emanuel church shootings, the Jewish synagogues in New York? How many more? innocent blood is going to be shed because they are indoctrinating these young white supremacists with all this racist garbage.
1: One might call it grooming. Um, Garnell Whitfield, our deepest, deepest condolences to you and the loss of your beautiful mom. Um, And thank you for taking some time to to share more about her. Um, She seemed absolutely lovely. Uh, And Ben, my friend, Ben Crump, thank you, as always. Cheers. Um, And up next. Polls are closing in North Carolina and will close in about 30 minutes in Pennsylvania. Steve Kornacki standing by at the big board with the latest. We'll be right back. North Carolina. And we are a half hour away from the polls closing in Pennsylvania's pivotal primary elections. My colleague Steve Kornacki, NBC News national political correspondent, has the latest from the big board. Steve, take it away.
8: Well, Joy, here we go. North Carolina, we expect to start getting some numbers, hopefully in the near future here. The marquee race in North Carolina is the race for the United States Senate. What you're looking at here is the Republican primary here. This is an open seat currently held by a Republican, Richard Burr. He's not running for re-election. Republicans trying to hold this seat. The dynamic to keep in mind here in this North Carolina race, this is one of those races where Donald Trump has made an endorsement. Congressman Ted Budd, Donald Trump has endorsed him. He has led in the most recent polls. He's also got the backing of the Club for Growth. That's a conservative group that's been spending a fortune in races all across the country. It's been an interesting dynamic in some places, like we saw in Ohio recently. The Club for Growth has been at odds with Donald Trump. That is not the case in North Carolina. What that's meant is there's been a ton of money. There's been Trump's endorsement behind Bud. Meanwhile, the former Republican Governor Pat McCrory, who's also in this race, he has had a ton of money spent against him. Third candidate here, tried to get the Trump endorsement. Mark Walker failed. He's sort of been distant third in the polls. As the numbers come in here in this race, the key to keep an eye on, besides who's leading, is 30 percent. There is a 30 percent runoff threshold in North Carolina. You got to win. You got to get above 30 percent. In this Senate race, it certainly seems likely the winner will get more than 30. But where that really comes into play is in North Carolina is a race, a congressional race that's gotten quite a bit of national attention. You know who this is? Madison Cawthorn, freshman Republican. He has drawn a whole host of challengers in his district. It's Western North Carolina. It's one of the most scenic congressional districts in the country, but it's going to be one of the most eventful primaries tonight. Cawthorn has gotten himself in a boatload of trouble recently, got a bunch of challengers. Uh, There's a local state senator here, Chuck Edwards, who may be best positioned here to give. Cawthorne a run tonight we'll see but this is where that 30% number if i can write that down again this is where that 30% number really comes into play because if Cawthorne can finish with the most votes tonight and even if he just gets 31% he gets renominated and in a district like this he'd be in very good shape to get reelected but if he falls short of 30 and he gets forced into a runoff he might have some money issues just given what he's had to spend here late in this campaign and again given the momentum that's From his opponents to try to take him out a runoff. They would dearly love to get Madison Cawthorn into a runoff. So we're gonna be keeping an eye on Western North Carolina in that Republican primary. And then as you say, less than half an hour from now, the Keystone State in Pennsylvania. We've got a couple of marquee races there. This is the biggest one, though. The Senate race on the Republican side here. Again, you've got that dynamic Donald Trump endorsing Dr. Mehmet Oz. Oz's unfavorable ratings with Republicans. We've seen this in poll after poll. He A lot of high negatives with Republican primary voters. So it's an interesting test. He might be a hard sell with the Republican base. Trump has tried to make that sale with the Republican base. We'll see if Trump is able to. Also, the other two key candidates to keep in mind here in the Senate race, David McCormick. Uh, He's a hedge fund, a wealthy hedge fund guy who grew up up in western Pennsylvania, moved to Connecticut, moved back. They put the home county of the candidates on the ballot in Pennsylvania. They don't do that everywhere. He's the only one in this Republican Senate race who's going to list western Pennsylvania, Allegheny County as his base McCormick is. So that's one of the things we're going to be looking at is they're an east-west divide. You know, about 30 percent of the vote here in this primary is going to come from western Pennsylvania. And then, of course, there is Kathy Barnett. She has surged in the final week of this campaign. She, herself didn't bring a lot of money to this campaign, but she got an endorsement from the Club for Growth late in this campaign. One of those places where the Club for Growth is at odds with former President Donald Trump. So we will see here how this one all shakes out. There have been Republicans, certainly Republican establishment types. Donald Trump himself, who've been sounding an alarm in the past week saying they don't think Barnett could win the general election in Pennsylvania. And the stakes here in Pennsylvania in terms of the general election, it's currently this seat, this Senate seat. It's Pat Toomey, a Republican. He's retiring. He's not running again, so it's an open seat, but it is held by a Republican right now. This is the Democrats, probably their best. Pick up opportunity in the country. When you look at that 50-50 Senate where Kamala Harris is breaking the ties right now, Pennsylvania is at the absolute top of the absolute must-win list for Democrats. And that is the other thing that will be resolved here tonight in Pennsylvania. But we'll be looking to, we'll be looking here to see the Senate race on the Democratic side. The Lieutenant Governor, John Fetterman, he suffered that stroke the other day. Connor Lamb, Congressman from Western Pennsylvania. Malcolm Kenyatta, State Representative from Philadelphia. Fetterman has led in all the polls. We do want to see votes today. Did the, the news of his medical condition? Did it have any effect? But I would note that in Pennsylvania on the Democratic side, a lot of votes were cast by mail early, and I am being told. Let me mm-hmm. just go check back here. We may have our first results in from North Carolina. We do. We have a scattering of results in here from North Carolina. So you could just see it's a it's a very small amount. Pat McCrory. We're talking about ten thousand votes. Pat McCrory actually out to the early lead here. One thing I point out: Mecklenburg County. This is where Charlotte is. Accounts for this. Pat McCrory, the former mayor of Charlotte. This is his political base. Uh, Uh, The other thing to keep in mind is that in North Carolina, the sequence of the vote reporting is it's the early vote. It's the absentee vote that's generally going to be counted first and then the same-day vote. And the thing we've seen in Republican primary after Republican primary so far this year is the same-day vote has been the vote that's more closely aligned with Trump. The Trump-aligned, Trump-endorsed candidates have done better in the same-day vote than in the early vote. So we're getting some of the early vote reported out here uh, in uh, throughout North Carolina. Again, that is McCrory's base right there where you see uh, his gold pop up right there. That probably explains why statewide he has the number he has right now, but it's very early. It's a scattering, and I will just check to see if we have any. That, that is also. It looks like a little bit uh, potentially coming from that fourteenth from that uh, district. I think they want me to wrap, but I just wanted to show you that's the beginning in the mm-hmm. Cawthorn race.
1: Real, it's real quick before I let you go. I know we're out of time. Can you just go to the Democratic um, Senate race too to see if, what, where is Beasley uh, standing in this early bit?
8: Yeah, I mean she's the that overwhelming, like that she be the like She's the overwhelming favorite to win. and Let's see. Yeah, do I, I say overwhelming favorite? This is about yeah, what we would expect. So we'll be okay. That's so what we'd be looking at,
1: Beasley v. whoever. <laughs> who wins that
8: Republican uh, nomination. That's right.
1: Very interesting. Steve, don't make too many plans for uh, tomorrow night, my friend. Thank you very much. I really appreciate you. you Excellent. It. Steve, cheers. All right. Of course, Steve, we'll be tracking developments at the big board throughout the night on MSNBC. We know you love it. He's got the khakis and he's ready to party. We'll be back in a sec.
0: <laughs> the Living Room is where you make life's most beautiful memories.
1: All right, joining me now to break down tonight's big races is Will Bunch, national opinion columnist for the Philadelphia Inquirer, and Adrian Elrod, former senior aide on the Biden Harris and Clinton Kane campaigns. Thank you both for being here. I'm going to start with you, Will. You're my Philly guy. Uh, talk to me about this PA Senate uh, and gov- these Pennsylvania Senate and governor's races. Give me some prognostication. <laughs> What's going to happen? Well, I, I think Just tell think me the results.
9: Right. <laughs> I think you've got. I wish. Uh, uh, a few minutes. Pulse closing about. 10 minutes, but uh, yeah, uh, Steve is right. The race to watch definitely is that uh, Republican Senate primary, and particularly surging Kathy Barnett. Can she catch up to Mehmet Oz and his endorsement by Trump and his, you know, the hectoring by by Sean Hannity on on, on uh, Mehmet Oz's behalf? Um, uh, it's a 50 50 toss up, I think, um, but it does seem like in the final days of the race, undecided voters are, are breaking for Kathy Barnett. And uh, if I really had to bet my last 20 bucks, I probably would bet it on the candidate who's getting the undecideds at the end there. It's it's, it's quite a story. I mean, you know, um, uh, Oz and, and David McCormick spent much of their wealth destroying each other. And she came in as this unknown, but kind of relatable, you know, I am you, that's her motto campaign. And it's, and it's really caught on. So that's the race to watch. I think I think there's not going to be as much suspense in the other races. I think, I think, um, I, I, on the democratic side in the Senate race, I think Fetterman is pretty much a lot. He's got a huge lead. I, I think, I think the stroke and the good news that he's going to recover and that he's had a procedure is kind of locked in his, his lead, yeah. um, for that, uh, on the, um, Republican side though, um, is Doug Mastriano who is a Christian nationalist, a, uh, human adjacent, uh, Big lie supporter, uh, sent lots of buses down to uh, January 6th, roamed the Capitol grounds. Um, uh, he poses a real threat to the whole concept of democracy here in Pennsylvania. It's, it's going to be a big national story when he gets the nomination, because this is the state where, you know, we wrote the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution. And whether our votes are going to count in 2024 yeah. is going to be all on the line with this gubernatorial election.
1: Hey, let me bring you in on that, Adrian, because, you know, how would Democrats uh, message a campaign? Let's say it's Barnett is the Senate nominee and Mastriano is the gubernatorial nominee who would then appoint the secretary of state. Um, you would have a black Senate candidate who Would be able to allow far right Republican voters to say, See, we well, you don't, you know, we have no issues with race, we're going to vote for that lady. And you would have master, and also she defied Trump, so she wasn't Trump's candidate. Um, and then Mastriano, who is promising to deliver Pennsylvania for Trump or whoever, no matter how the vote goes,
10: yeah, yeah. I mean, Joy, this is sort of a dream scenario for Democrats if both of those candidates end up winning, and it certainly looks like it's um, moving in the, that direction. I mean, a Fetterman-Barnett matchup is exactly what Democrats want and exactly what we need in order to flip this seat. Um, you know, I can never I, can thought, Can Joy, I stop a need- second?
1: Is it, it, sure. is it, though? Because if Fetterman has to deal with that story that he pulled a gun on a black man and she's black and has actually made comments about systemic racism being real and actually really angered a lot of uh, the Republican base by saying that, is that, it's simple because I also think that Dr. Oz is not necessarily a walk for Democrats. He's famous. People just like voting for famous people.
10: Yeah, yeah. I Look, I definitely don't think it's a walk for Democrats, but we've got to look at the numbers in Pennsylvania. Hillary Clinton, as you know very well, Joy uh, narrowly lost Pennsylvania in 2016. Uh, President Biden uh, narrowly won Pennsylvania in 2020. So it's a marginal district. But the voters of Pennsylvania are working class, uh, moderate voters. And I don't think they're going to be turned on in the general by somebody who has the extremist views is Kathy Barnett. And look, I do think that John Fetterman, should he be the nominee, is going to have to answer some of these tough questions. That's what political campaigns are all about. He's going to have to answer some of these questions. But you know, ultimately, Joy, when you look at the big picture here, you look at Georgia, where it looks like Herschel Walker is going to be the nominee for Republicans. You look at what's happening in Pennsylvania. Republicans cannot get out of their way. This is traditionally a cycle that the party not in power of the White House does better. Um, I think the House is, you know, Republicans have, have a much better shot in the House. But when you look at some of these Senate seats, uh, Democrats are looking pretty good from New Hampshire to Arizona to, um, you know, even to an extent, Wisconsin. And, of course, in Pennsylvania, uh, The the Trump MAGA folks just can't get out of their own way. And when you have mm-hmm. some of these primaries where you have a Trump endorsed MAGA candidate, and then someone who's even going more to the right of the Trump endorsed MAGA candidate. Um, that's where mm-hmm. you've got some real problems for Republicans.
1: Well, let me ask you if you agree with that, Will, because it, it, how, would it be that simple that a Barnett, Mastriano, those two on the ballot would make it that much easier for Democrats or No.
9: Look, Joy, you and I both remember 2016 very well, and we remember how the Hillary Clinton campaign salivated against the prospect of running against Donald Trump—that they were going to use his sexual history and all his other past scandals—and they would destroy him. And uh, you know, instead, all these rural voters came out of the woodwork, and and uh, Donald Trump won Pennsylvania by 44,000 votes yeah. in 2016. And you know, never I, I, I have same fears. I there are there are voters out there who, who want to stick it to the system. They're mad about yeah. they're mad about gas prices. They're mad about inflation. And if you can you can tell them, you know, look, this guy Mastriano, he might not count your votes, and you say, Oh, we don't, we don't care about that. We we want change, you know, we we, we want yeah. to be so so I think you know you know, Josh Shapiro, who's the presumptive um, the he's the attorney general and he's the presumptive Democratic yeah. nominee for everybody yeah. running against Mastriano, he's he's running yeah. ads that kind of subtly have tried to promote. Mastriano yep. that he wants to, his opponent. And I, I always yeah. think you should be careful what
1: you wish for. Be careful Maybe. what you wish for. I want to note that Cherry Beasley is going to be the, North, the Democratic North Carolina Senate candidate. Charles Booker is going to be the Kentucky United States Senate candidate. It's going to be a historic year for African-American candidates, no matter what happens. Um, Will Bunch, Adrian Elrod, thank you both very much. Up next, the right wing's Thanks, almost right. unbelievable reaction to the mass shooting in Buffalo. We'll be right back. Republicans in the right-wing echo chamber over at Fox News would very much like you to forget about how some of them were spouting the same replacement theory excrement cited by the Buffalo shooter in his manifesto. In Buffalo today, President Biden called Saturday's shooting what it was, terrorism driven by hate, while Mitch McConnell was asked if he has any personal responsibility to speak out against the ideology repeated by some members of his caucus.
5: Well, certainly the episode, this horrible episode in Buffalo is a result of a completely deranged uh, young man who ought to suffer the severest possible penalty under the law.
1: Yeah, apparently Mitch would still rather benefit politically from that dangerous rhetoric than condemn it, something he dodged two more chances to do. Over in the House, the two—and there seem to really just be two Republicans who care about democracy continuing to exist in America, Liz Cheney and Adam Kinzinger—have called out Republican leadership, like Elise Stefanik of New York, the third-ranking House Republican who replaced Cheney. She's unhappy— Ms. Stefanik is that people remembered her campaign committee ran Facebook ads essentially parroting replacement theory last fall, warning of a permanent election insurrection. She tweeted a statement yesterday referring to the Buffalo shooting as tragic and included a statement from a senior advisor attacking the media saying, well, she's never advocated for any racist position. But right after that, she wrote, Democrats desperately want wide open borders and mass amnesty for illegals allowing them to vote. That's replacement theory, lady. That dress down version takes out some of the trigger words, but it is a complete double down on using the great replacement conspiracy theory for politics. Then there's Fox News, which didn't have the guts yesterday to mention the theory that they've been promoting, especially in prime time. Instead, the network's most watched offender, Tucker Carlson, named who he thinks are the real victims of the Buffalo Massacre, his perpetual victim viewers. So what is hate speech? Well, it's speech that our leaders hate.
3: So because a mentally ill teenager murdered strangers, you cannot be allowed to express your political views out loud. That's what they're telling you.
1: With me now, Charles Blow, columnist for The New York Times and an MSNBC political analyst and Dino Badala, host of The Dino Badala Show on Sirius XM. Charles, can we spare a moment for the real victims? Uh, Because apparently the real victims are Tucker Carlson and his viewers and also J.D. Vance, who also declared himself to be the real victim. Your thoughts.
11: Well, you know, it, it's really interesting to me because I don't believe that Republicans are ever going to walk away from the idea of replacement. They, they may, you know, this idea of replacement uh, uh, and replacement theory are slightly separate. There may be people who might walk away from the idea of calling it a conspiracy that Jewish people are behind or calling it a conspiracy that Democrats really uh, are, are chasing policy to make sure it happens. But the idea itself that white people are afraid of being replaced or being outnumbered is real and it is ancient in this country. It animated the, the horrors of slavery. It animated the terror campaigns of, 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 of Reconstruction. It animated the rise of Jim Crow. It made a reemergence uh, during the Civil Rights Movement. You know, this guy, mm-hmm. James Burnham, writes his magnum opus called Suicide of the West in 1963, in which he says, you know, that that liberalism is, what, what do you call it, an ideology of Western suicide because they would not go along with his idea of white nationalism. And we keep hearing people on television not talking about, well, this, this would live on the fringes of, of the dark web. No, this lived in the intellectual chambers. This lived in the ivory towers. Burnham was not on the, on the fringes. Burnham went to Princeton. Burnham helped found the National Review. Burnham was the chair of the philosophy department at NYU for a very long time. You know, Pat Buchanan comes right behind him in 2012, writes this book called Death of a Superpower, which he said calls white liberals who are cheering the transformation of the country uh, ethno and having a diseased heart. These are not on the fringe. This is not new. This is very old. This is very entrenched in conservatism, and it animates their voters. They are never going to walk away from that because they are the whole set of Republican voters who believe that white people are the fathers and the mothers of the modern world. And if you were to take America away from them, you are taking away something that they created on their own. That's what they believe.
1: And th- this is the, the challenge, Deed, because it's the, the, you know, the sort of soft pedaled version of that is still the same thing. And Mitch McConnell does his whole, oh, just doesn't answer it. But he knows that that's a substantial share of the base, whether they're the wild and woolly ones or just the regular ones. He knows that that anxiety is why people had such a, you know, bizarre reaction to President Obama. Uh, your thoughts? I mean, John Gibson was on Fox in like 2006 saying people need to have more babies in Europe and the United States because they're, under, they're not keeping up with immigrants who are having more, more babies. Uh, your thoughts.
12: First of all, this panel is probably giving some people white anxiety right off the bat. There's a Muslim 100%. and two black people on it, so they're probably freaking out right now, going, look, it's here. They've replaced us. The, the reality is Tucker Carlson uh, took the great replacement theory that Charles talks about and mainstreamed it. He put it on national TV nightly over and over and over again, so people on the fringes felt emboldened. They go, well, if he can talk about it, we can talk about it. It's why Matt Gates and Marcella Green and Paul Gozar and others on the right have embraced it. And let's take a step back. Imagine, Joy, a Muslim-American radio host like me or other Muslim-Americans in the media said that Muslims are going to be replaced by white people. They want to destroy our culture, civilization, and then Muslims commit terrorist attacks against white people, citing that philosophy. What do you think would happen to that Muslim-American? If they stay on the air? They'd be in prison. There'd be drone strikes against them. But Tucker Carlson can literally radicalize people, and the right won't talk about it. Let's remember Donald Trump said, you got to say the thing. It's radical Islamic terrorism. If you don't name it, you can't solve it. They won't say white supremacist terrorism. I dare you, Republicans, say it. White supremacist terrorism. You won't because it's your base, and we all know it.
1: And this is the case, despite the fact, Charles, that— it's something like 78% of the murders that were committed against, uh, here it is, these is murders connected to political extremism in two, from 2012 through 2021. White supremacy was, was responsible for 55% of them. 14% anti-government, 6% other right-wing. Islamists ain't even close. N-
11: not at all. I mean, th- this is staring all of us. Directly in the face. And as Dean was pointing out, no one wants to say what it is. And, and, and you know, I, I don't think that even, I know Republicans don't want to say it. I don't think that even liberals, Democrats say it enough. That Liz young, Cheney says it more. Men, <laughs> yes, young white men, this group of them, a small group of them, but a group of them have become domestic terrorists and they are young you know it, most of these men i was looking at all the ages they don't even crack 30 right we we always think about them as old people These are young white yeah domestic who are
1: being terrorists. radicalized who are being radicalized online right. and yes i'm sorry on cable news um charles blow dino Vidal, we gotta have you guys come back and talk about this some more thank you both very much that's nice read out